Here we have Dean, my good friend Dean Falls. How's it going? Sorry, man. Cool. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you've seen our podcast. The way we like to start is by looking at a piece of art and just getting your opinion on it and what you think about it. Yeah, that's a bit, that's a bit abstract for me, man. A bit abstract? <laughs> well, I, bit. I don't even know what those words mean. What do you mean? What is it? You tell me. What, what do you think about it when you see it? It looks a bit, looks a bit demonic to me, to be honest. Like the red, the red and the black contrast. There's a lot of devilment in them, in those colours. And the eyes. Yeah, it's a bit. So a bit demonic. Yeah, a bit demonic. So that's the feeling bit, you get. A bit, bit devilish for my, my, my palette. All right, cool. Uh, you know what? The reason why we ask that question, we have different people come in and we just ask them about art and it's like really subjective. So people see different things. And it's just to get you to open up in terms of what you see. But usually, to be honest, I've had a few people in here, but with you, I feel a bit, I don't know, it feels a bit different because like, you're someone I actually know. But like, I want people to understand your story and how you've got to where you've got to. So we want to go right back to the beginning, where you grew up, how you grew up, family, siblings, all sorts. Uh, so I, I grew up, I was born in... Lewisham Hospital. Uh, I'm 42 now, even though obviously I don't don't look it. But this uh, <laughs> guy, uh, 42. Um, born in Lewisham, and I grew up in South, like the, well, my whole life. That's, yeah. where, that's where I grew up. So I lived in like Sydney, Catford, like Lewisham area. That's mostly where I grew up. Uh, got two two younger brothers. So I was always like the head of the household because my mum like struggled with disability as well. So okay. like, my role in the household was to kind of support my mum, look after my brothers, and try and be a kid as well. Like, yeah. gr- growing up in South London, I know you know what that's, uh, what that's like. So when you say that, like, was your dad, about, or your dad around or? My dad, my dad was around, but he was, um, he had other kids. Like, it's, it's, a, it's an unfortunate kind of textbook story for, for men my generation from yeah. that area. Um, so he was kind of around, he had other kids, he had other things he was doing, he was in and out of jail a lot of the time. So yeah, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a continuous presence in my life at all. And is that something that you, is it something that you felt from the beginning that he was in and out, it wasn't really there? Because you talked, you straight away you spoke about you had to look after, you had two younger brothers mm. and your mum having dis- a disability. So you talked like you was the head of a house from a young age. Mm. But you, you know what's funny about like, all of that stuff? It's only when you, be- I think it's only when you become an adult that you realise that that stuff is, is not kind of normal. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. when you're a kid, and you're living in it, well, yeah, you just see your dad every two or three months, right? And, and it is what it is. And it is what it is. And when you see him, he brings McDonald's or takes you out for a day or two, and then you don't see him again. It's just normal. Like, it never felt, never really felt weird to me. Like, looking after my brothers, that never felt funny to me. It was only until I was an adult and maybe even a parent that I look back on that, and I'm like, that was, <laughs> that, yeah, was a lot. that was crazy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what, did you, do you feel like, even when we fast forward into what you're doing now and where you've got to now, do you feel like you've had responsibility from a young age? What, like, so my younger brother's five years and six years younger than me, right? And my mum would, she'd always worked. It's only, well, quite late when I was becoming an adult that she stopped working because she physically couldn't anymore. So my relationship with my mum, once I had brothers, was some days she would cook, some days I would cook, some days she would do the shopping, some days I would do the shopping. And it was very, very normal to me. So from 10 or 11... That's the way I've behaved. Okay, I've got to get my brothers to school, so I've got to be up a yeah. certain time. And a, a, not all, but a lot of the responsibility that comes from being a responsible adult, I kind of had it from maybe from, from 11. So, so I've lived most of my life with that responsibility. So nowadays in life, when I don't have responsibility, it's alien to me because I maybe only had yeah. 11 years where I didn't have it. Yeah. So 
So when I don't have it now or I'm not in control now. That's why you say you're uncomfortable. It feels it feels alien. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And like, you know, looking at because I think about my own daughter and I look at I don't know if you have this feeling sometimes when you look at how you've been in terms of the responsibilities you've had. Because you've said, like you said, it's quite a textbook story. I remember being what eight years old and I'm taking all my little cousins to school. Right. Like normal. Like I'm like the lollipop man. I'm like, all right, kids, over there, look <laughs> yeah, left, yeah. right. And I'm yeah. taking them to school. But then when you look at some of your own, like our own children, and you think, how's that been for you in terms of, would you give them certain responsibilities or would you say, oh, no, nah, it's a completely different time now? Uh, it's, it's, I think it's the hardest thing as a parent and it might be the hardest thing in my life now because, like, you work hard to be able to give your kids a certain lifestyle, right? And we came through the lifestyle that we had where we didn't have much and we had to have that responsibility. And the number one thing that we say is, we don't want our kids to have that experience, right? Yeah. So we're, we're working hard and killing ourselves so they don't have to have that experience. But then it gets difficult because there are things that we gained in that experience yeah. that our kids won't get, right? So now my kids are going to a great school. They live in a great neighborhood. They live in a brilliant house. They eat like six meals a day. They, they don't want for anything, but they don't have the edge that we, that we yeah. have, right? So... Yeah, it becomes hard because you have to artificially try and create situations yeah, yeah. to give them that, and it just like it just ain't it just ain't the same. It's not mm. the same. Like my my son, I say it all the time. He's he's fourteen. He's six foot two. He's never had a. He's never not only has he never had a fight, he's never had a tense conversation in yeah. his life. Yeah. Like just he's fourteen. He's never had a difficult. He's been told off by his parents. He's had arguments with his siblings. Apart from that, he's never been in a tricky situation in his, but, in his but then like you say it's mad because that's what you want generally like even though you feel like oh you need to know this or you need to know that but it's like well actually you don't need to know these things actually you don't need to go through those things it's only sometimes I suppose for myself I think well life can be a bit harsh so you want to mm. know they can right. handle themselves out there but I right. think really they get that anyway from their parents so mm, I, I don't know I, what I've settled on is like my kids have to get that edge from somewhere. They have to get mm. that drive. They have to have that determination. There's no success in life, in my opinion, if they don't have those things and they don't know how to deal with the realities of life. Mm. The hard part as a parent is to give them those, that edge yeah. without the adversity. Mm. That, that's hard to do because I, I, only know, I only know how to get it myself through adversity. Of, yeah. So it's very, it's very hard. It's very, very hard to do that. But they, I think they need it, man. Yeah, no, I hear that. Uh, so cool. You saying so? What was school in like going to school? School was a uh, school was alright for me. You know, a lot of people around me and a lot of my friends were like got in a lot of trouble and stuff like, mm. in and out of school. That wasn't really what happened to me because, like, I was playing football, and when you play football in school, you get a little bit of celebrity that yeah, comes yeah, with yeah. you. Right? Popular. So, so you become popular through through football, and I was funny. So like, I got through school on those two things. And it wasn't until late in school when I met like Nick and Corey, my good friends now, who were hugely academic. Yeah. So for the last was two Corey, years, was Corey hugely academic? Yeah. 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 Oh. So when I became friends with them, their whole thing was we're trying to get A's and like how many A's can we yeah. get and how many like A to C's can we get? Like they were really. So when I became friends with them, like they made it all right for me to be to more be academic that, yeah. as well. And then and in the end, I, I left school like with really good grades, but only because. I kind of became the influences you had around you, mm. and you said you mentioned football. So is that something that was dear to you? How does that work out? Yeah, you know, I was a brilliant footballer. No, oh, I, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but go on, yeah, no, that, that football was a big thing. Yeah, def- definitely. And that was 
with everything going on at home in the house, like that was the only real release. Like that was the only little gateway where I could get out of the house, do something just about me. Didn't have to take my little brothers. They had no responsibility other than other than football. So I did quite well. Like I, I went for the representative teams and that kind of stuff. Played yeah. at Palace for a little while. Had all of that. Uh, had all of that. But it was more like a release. Like at, at that point. So when you say when you were talking about football and you said everything going on at home, at home, so you're talking about like the responsibility that you had mm. and whatnot, and that was something that was for you. Was how did you find yourself in terms of football? Was it something you was taking yourself to football? Because me and Gavin had a conversation about this, saying like growing up and not really having those father figures there, it was mad because some of our counterparts would be their mum and dad, their yeah, mum and dad yeah. gets on with the coaches and yeah, that, yeah. and we're just there getting there late, getting on the wrong bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you like, you're already pissed off because I'm late or yeah. whatever's gone at home and I get there and then I've got this coach having a go at me, but he's not really understanding where I'm coming from. Yeah. So what was that experience like for you? I, I was lucky. I was lucky because uh, like Sammy Dale and John Wilford's dads mm. like looked out for me. I think they were two people who saw my circumstances at home. So they were picking me up every week uh, and the coach was paying my subs and Sammy's dad was buying me boots and John Wilford's dad was buying me, buying me kit. So I kind of, I, I know of, I know of that experience, but that wasn't my experience because yeah. I had a lot of people that were kind of looking like looking looking out for me. All right, so that leads me into another question. So growing up, not fast forwarding too much, who would you say? Because maybe you've just mentioned who would you say were quite influential figures on your life growing up? I don't know. Like, my mum, obviously, because like mm. my mum had mad like really high standards for us, um, and like I say, she was disabled but she would like walk to work and she would like work really long days. So when you see that, it's like, well, so now, I, now I say to people, even at work, I say like, no, you like, you can come to work. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, do you know what I mean? It, it created a normal for me that like, yeah, you can disabled, get through this. Yeah. She's small. Um, she's got the world on her shoulders. She's got my dad to deal with. She's got three sons and she's at work like five days a week, 10 hours a day. So you can, right. So it created that. So, so my mum, um, I would say, yeah, Sammy's dad and, and John Wolfe's dad, for sure. Uh, maybe Nick and Corey. Before. Yeah. Okay. Like early, but I've been lucky with, yeah. with good people around me. All right. So going on further, so you're at school, you leave school, you do all right with your GCSEs? Yeah, yeah. I've got 10 A to Cs. Oh, so you got it, yeah, all right. Yeah. I'm proud of you. All right, so go couple, on, so what couple, happened from there? A couple so A-stars in there as well. So, yeah, so a couple of stars, all right, fair enough. So what you leave on, you move on from there. So what is it now? Sixth form, college, what happens? Do you know what, you know what happened? When I, when I left school, I was playing football and a friend of mine had left home at 16 and he was like living in a, um, a hostel. So, and he was a bit older than me. So for my last year of school, I was socialising at the hostel and it created this romantic idea in my head that, like not living at home was a brilliant thing yeah, yeah, to do because yeah, yeah. he had his own space and he was playing music until late and no one was telling him when to come in. So it created this like romantic notion that the thing to do at 16 was to leave home. So I left home at 16, like on my 16th birthday, I left home and went and stayed in that shared accommodation. But do you, sorry, well. just touching on that, do you think that was part of, like you said, like home life was a bit chaotic? So do you think that was part of that was wanting to get away from that or do you think it was nothing to do with that? It was, 100%, it was 100% that. But what happened was going to his place, like I said, like up until that point, everything that was happening to me felt normal. Like my whole experience mm. was just, this is just what life is. I didn't feel oppressed by it at all. It was just the right thing to do and I was fine with it. Then I'm going there and I'm going, well, hold on, he's like 
He's the same as me, same age as me. And he's got all of this independency. Yeah, so I, I left home at 16. It destroyed my mum when I did it. And like, long story short, maybe a year later, I was back at home in a whole world of trouble and, and like, yeah. and pain. So it was, a dumb, it was a dumb thing to do. And funnily enough, by the time I got home, my mum was losing her house anyway. So we all ended up homeless together yeah. shortly after I got home anyway. Yeah. And what was, what was that like? In terms, is this a home that you grew up in and been in for some time with your mum? Or was it, like, was you in and out of houses or was it a place that you... That, that house, so we, me and my mum uh, kind of escaped my dad in our first house because he, like, he was abusive towards my mum. So we escaped my dad and then we had a new house like in, uh, in Lewisham. So we were in that house for 10 years together. And that was a very important house because that was the house we escaped yeah. to. And that's the house where my brothers like were safe born and grew up. And it was, it was kind of safe. And, and legally, he, wa- he wasn't supposed to ever come there, even though like, in, in time he did. But it was, it was safer. So it meant, the house meant a lot. And then late, uh, late in our time, then my mum decided to buy the house. And then financially, she couldn't like, manage it. So we ended up losing it. So it was a massive deal, losing the house because of everything that it stood for. Mm. It was huge. Uh, like trying to go back into that place, not to take you too far back, but looking at that now and like looking at it hindsight, how do you think that was affecting? Because it's a lot. Like you're my mate and you're saying this and you're like, oh, we're escaping my dad. This is the house where I had responsibility. I've moved out. I've come back, like seeing that it's not for me. And then you lose the house. Like looking back at that, like how do you think that, how did you react to that at the time? Yeah, at, at the time, and it's, it, was, it was difficult because of a positive characteristic but at the time I felt helpless and I think like I'd always managed to be there for my mum and be helpful towards Mm. my mum and I know my mum relied on me and and depended on me a lot and what what happened to me was I left home and I knew that hurt my Mm mum then I came back and then we lost the house and and I I wore a lot of it myself I was kind of like like you've let her down twice you know if you if you had been here you could have helped you could have earned money you could have like you would have been supportive towards her so yeah, I, I wore it really bad. And I would say like the next two years of my life at that point were pretty, that were pretty bad because of that. I, I managed it by like detaching myself from my family. Okay. Even though we were homeless together in the same place, I didn't really participate in what my mum was trying to do to try and get us out of it. I was just like out of the- I swear, shutting off to it. But then like, once again, like you said it from the very beginning, it seems like that word responsibility again, like you at a young age, but you're wearing that, you're taking it. Oh, it's my fault. You're taking that responsibility when actually it isn't really your fault at that age. Mm. You know what I mean? You're just a kid finding yourself, mm. finding your place in life. But then it seems like it's something that's quite prevalent throughout your life, responsibility mm. and taking that responsibility. So, okay. Yeah. So you go on, you're going on through now. So you, was you at college, sixth form? No, I wasn't really, I wasn't really doing anything. I, and, and then I got kind of got back in, um, I was playing football again and then I kind of ended up back in a little bit more trouble about around that time, kind of 17, 18, uh, ended up in a little bit more trouble. And I think that's the first time I ever got arrested, uh, probably 18 years old, 17 or 18. That first time I got, I got arrested and it was a... Uh, well, you say first time, what was this a common occurrence? And you say no, first time. It's actually the first, yeah. it's actually the first, have I been arrested? No, first and only time I ever got arrested. Yeah. But obviously, it's a, it's a big thing to get arrested. Yeah. Like it's a, we can't, can't downplay that. Where, where we come from and the environment we come from. It is downplayed though, it, isn't it? It's not, it's not as big a deal yeah. as it ought to be, right? So yeah. I, everybody I knew had been arrested, mm. probably most people, multiple times yeah. by that point. 
But that was my first time. And it's funny because as normal as it seemed with people being, it's two, two things are funny. Like it seemed pretty normal that people got arrested. And then when I got arrested, I was like, shit, like this is- Yeah, crazy. it's not normal. This you know, when crazy. they first say it to you, you feel like, right, is this a movie? Yeah, yeah. They're like, yeah, you have to write. You're like, what, what do you mean? Like, is this really going on? Like, yeah. Yeah, it, it went from like, yeah, something you don't really need to be too concerned about to my life is about to end in, yeah. in two seconds. That was the first thing that happened. And the second thing that happened uh, is when I understood the severity of the situation I got myself in, and they're talking about the, the uh, punishment that could come with this. Mm-hmm. I, I admitted to myself in a second, I, ha- I was not built for any part of that. Yeah. Right? And all of the macho-ness that you need to have to survive where, like, where we grew up, it ran out of me in like five, in five <laughs> seconds. <laughs> in five seconds, I was like, yeah, that's oh, same no, for no. me. Yeah. yeah, they were like, you could go to prison for ten years. I was like, yep, I'm not, for, yeah. I'm not built for this at all. And I'm grateful for that, man, because yeah, you know, like when I when I came out of that situation, my number one thing was I'm never ever going back into that situation. It's never happening. I'm not interested in any conversation, any get rich quick scheme, any association. <laughs> That's going to put me back in that situation. Yeah. So you got you got away with that. You got out of that situation. Obviously, you said that you might have been well, based in prison or whatnot. So you got out of that situation, and then so after that, and you made this, and it's promised to God. What was the journey then? Because I remember using to go uni, right? So we used to have banter about that. I went, uh, I went to uni long enough to get the student loan. Yeah, which was I like remember. Two, which was like two weeks. So yeah, I went to uni to get the. Student loan, which isn't a good thing to do, by the way. Keep like people. So was that your people, plan all along? Because I swear we were all just gonna go uni. Like, was that your plan all along, just to get the student loan and bounce? I got the uh, yeah. That that was my plan at that point in time because I had no money. And then mm. I started playing a fo- playing football again, and football started to go well in two ways. Like it was back to being like a safe, good place to go. Do you, do you know what I mean? And um, and then I started to get good and and. Like there were different opportunities, but then somebody like sat me down among all them opportunities and was saying, you know, you, you need to go to work basically. And then they got me a, a job at Motorola um, doing cold calling. So it's like, look, you, you need money. This football thing doesn't look like it's really going to... Is that what you wanted to be? So you wanted, from a young age, wanted to be a professional mm-hmm. footballer? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. And you were around those times when we were driving all over yeah. the country yeah. on this trial and that trial yeah, yeah, yeah. With, no, with no money and... No idea, just trying yeah. to film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and grateful to be coming home with the kit, like the training kit from <laughs> the different clubs. Um, yeah. Dean took me for dinner and he, and he said, you're a smart guy, um, you've borrowed a lot of money, you're in debt. You need to build a career for yourself. I can see you trialing at all these places. I don't think it's going to work out. You need to, um, you need to go and work. So he had that conversation. And then, uh, yeah, I had to switch like in a, mm. in a weekend. I was devastated. I was absolutely yeah. broken. But anyway, yeah, so you started work on Monday. And what was that like for you? Fucking horrible. Yeah. Right. It was horrible. It was awful, man. Like, because week, the week before, your training two hours a day with, with your mates, then you finish training and you go wherever you go to have a laugh, meet up with other friends, have something to eat. It's so social. And your time's your own. Apart from those two hours in a day, your, t- your time's your own. And then on a Monday morning, like I'm in a room that's got no windows. It's, it's a basement room. It's got no windows. There's a long desk in the middle. There's like 20 of us sat around the desk. I've got a pile of paper with telephone numbers on it that I'm supposed to call. And I've got a manager who's walking around the table 
you know, like listening into people's cold calls and shouting at them if they don't yeah. say the right script or he's pulling the phone out of the socket and firing oh, people. Ah, so he was one of those ones. Yeah. What yeah. proper baptism of fire? Ah, uh, if you don't make 70 outgoing calls a day, don't come back tomorrow. You made 68, you're useless, get out. It was that, it was that kind of environment. So I, I used to go in the um, toilet at like half nine in the morning and just try and stay in there for as long as possible. And you know, like when you, I don't know if you've done that, like at work, like you're sitting in the toilet and you think, yeah, I've been, I've been in there three hours. <laughs> I've been in there at least three hours. I yeah. came in at half nine. It's got to be lunchtime now. And you come out and it's, Half like, an hour. It's nine forty. Like oh. you ten minutes, <laughs> and it was, and it wasn't like you couldn't even sit in there on social media those days. Like you just actually just sitting in the toilet. Yeah, it was dreadful, man. So what? But did you start to did you start to get the hang of it? Did you start to perform within that? How was it? You know, it was it was a uh, pride, like foolish pride, because I was I was doing terribly at that as well, and then um. I remember like one of them times coming out of the toilet. I remember it like it was yesterday, right? So coming out of the toilet and I remember everybody kind of looking at me like, this guy, this guy's a joke. <laughs> this guy, he'll, he'll be out of there soon. And like, I, I could see the sniggers and yeah. I, could, I could overhear the comments. And when, that, when I saw that, I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, you're not dealing yeah, with me like that. I was like, no that. way. No, no way on God's earth. Because you, you guys aren't even good. Like you're not, I listen to you. Yeah. Do you know, like yeah. I listen to you and I, you're not very good. It's more, you just don't want to be there. I don't, I don't, yeah. The reason I'm not doing well is because I don't want to do well yeah. at this. You're not doing well because you're actually not very good. So, and at that moment I, I thought, okay, I'm going to leave here soon. But before I leave, these people are going to understand that I'm a, a lot better than, than them. Right? Yeah. So I, I can leave when I'm sure that like Sharon and Bob understand that if I wanted to do this, yeah. I could do a hundred times better than them in half of the time. And so I started behaving like that. And then I ended up getting promoted and the idiot that was the manager ended up getting fired. And I ended up being the manager of that place. And what sort of time span was this? Probably six months. All of Within that six happened. months. Mm. So you took to it, once you focused on it, you took to it. What, was it quite I never, easy I for never you? took to it. I, hate, I hated every single element of it. I hated, there was nothing about it that I enjoyed. I didn't yeah. even enjoy the money because the money wasn't very good. I hated all of it. It was just... I'm not, I'm just not coming out of here with people think, thinking that I couldn't do this So looking back at that time, did you ever, was there anyone you ever spoke to about this? So, you know, like as friends, as peers, like, because no, you're saying no, this, no, but you don't, I know you never said to like me, to Nick, or anyone, like, and I never spoke to you about it because you were making fun of me. You were making fun of me. You know this guy, I knew you were going to do this, like, stop this, like, you were making fun of me. I didn't make fun of you, it's true, TC Communications. But this is the second thing you attribute to me. You need to stop this. But anyway, yeah, all right, so I used to take the piss out of you, yeah? All right, cool, I was taking the piss out of you, but I couldn't talk, I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I couldn't talk to the, to one group of friends because they were, like they were playing in the Premier League. They were on this unbelievable high. I didn't, I didn't have it in me to go to them and say, okay, well done today for making your Premier League debut, but I'm finding it really hard because I only made 67 outgoing calls today instead of 70 and my manager shouted at me. Like there wasn't a, I think there was nowhere to have that conversation. Do you think that it would have been cool if you did have someone to talk to? Obviously for you, it's cool because it's led you to be the person who you are. But do you think as young men growing up in this day and age that it would be nice if you have someone to talk to or you think well it's just a part of the journey a thousand percent like a thousand percent having someone to talk to then would have been helpful because nowadays I have a lot of people to talk to and I do talk to them and it yeah. helps me you know it helps me a lot so to think I was 18 in my first ever job 
like struggling a lot mentally, struggling financially yeah. and overcoming that on my own. Yeah, I, I, I don't really understand how that even happened for, for me, let alone any, anybody else. So yeah. That's why I'm asking you that because it's easy to look at yourself and say, oh, well, I got for it. But I'm sure if a lot of other people, they could like, you can implode. Like it can be a bit too much where you end up going down another road. Do you know what I mean? Because it's a bit, it's a lot. It's a lot of responsibility. I the, the, I look at it now and I understand that the combina- there's a combination of unique circumstances that meant I didn't fall off of the edge in that situation. There's a very mm. unique combination that I'm grateful for. Right. So I played football. So being shouted at by my manager yeah. wasn't a new concept to yeah. me. Right? I, I'd been educated for three or four years that that's how managers gave feedback. That was, that, yeah, yeah. that was normalized yeah, for me at, at football, right? I'd had a tough time with my mum, right? And I was used to getting up earlier than I needed to, to get my brothers dressed and to school and come up. So getting up super early to go to work, doing the graph, coming home and having all of, all of those. And I could give you, you know, 20 other like micro elements that meant I could survive yeah. in that circumstance. Take out one or two of those, right? Had I, had I ended up in that environment having not played football, and this guy is shouting at me. The first yeah. adult that I work for, the only way they communicate to me is to shout at me. I probably break. Right? I, I probably break. Having never had responsibility for my brothers and have to program myself to get up and do what I need to do to get them on time. Having not had that, mm. I probably break. I probably break. Right? So it's, it's all of these little tiny things that I'm lucky. I'm lucky they existed. Otherwise, I don't think I would have. Yeah, got, that got makes perfect that. sense. Because I, I remember my first job, I were like literally, I think, I went, I don't even think I even told you a lot. Like I was at uni and I went, I was on a site. I thought, all right, let me go and work on the site. And I went down, I remember him like, you fucking this, you, who are you talking to? Like, you know, like, I'm like, who are you talking to? Like, so my mentality was like, no, nah, you're not talking to me. Like, surely there should be respect. Yeah. But then obviously I got sacked, like, like literally within a week. But right. do you know what I mean? It's because of, I wasn't used to that environment of being spoken to a yeah. certain way as opposed yeah. to you saying, going through football and going through those things or having that responsibility from a young young age with your siblings and whatnot. So that totally makes sense. So carry on, sorry. So you said that you was, you got a promotion, became a manager and whatnot. And then where's it going yeah, from now? Then I, as soon as, as soon as I clocked it, uh, I um, got another, I got another job at a, at a partner of Motorola. So it's a really small um, telecoms company in Chiswick. There was only four people there and I was the fifth person they hired and they hired me to do sales because kind of that's what I was doing at Marora. Um so I went there as the fifth employee um, and that was really cool they were we were winning a lot of big contracts at Disney and, and Vodafone and things like that so I was learning a lot there um, like primarily doing sales and marketing then I ended up having people work for me so that was the first time I had like four or five sales people working for me and how old was you at this age at this time sorry 22 yeah 22 or yeah 22 21 22 um so that was going really really well and i was making good good money for my age at, at that time probably like maybe 30 grand a year at, at that point so 22 like that was that yeah. was amazing money but then i fell out with them because they were getting ready to sell that company and when we sat down and talked about it i was like okay well we need to document my 20 percent of the shares and, the, and they were like what, what do you mean i was like well yeah i, I own 20 percent of the company because we we all started this together. Right? We were all here from the beginning. And they were like, no, no, no. We, we put millions into this company yeah. to get it started. So you felt like, because of the work you'd done, you're like, no, no, I don't care if you put millions in. I'm part of this. Right. I was, like, I was here pretty much from the beginning. There were five of us. Whenever we talk about this company, the five of us talk together when we <laughs> hire people. The five of us are involved. 
I'm sales. So all of these new contracts that are creating the money that's coming in, that is creating the value that you're going to sell. I'm the one doing that. No, no me, no Disney, no Vodafone, right? No, none of these big, big deals. So of course I own 20%. Wait, so take me back to how did you get to the point where you could just get Disney in and you could get these people in? Like, what was it like? Because I know you had the experience in the previous job, but how did you just take to this where you just, I don't know, how did you just get Disney in? It was, um, again, it's like fortunate circumstances that a lot of the sales and contracts that that company was trying to win were in the media media and entertainment space. Um, so it was mobile phone fleet management. So, we, you know, there were 10,000 phones in um, like EMI, the music company at the time. So we would manage them. So if someone's phone broke, we would go with a new phone. If they needed a battery, we would go yeah. like it was, we, that's what we were doing. And the benefit of it being media is it wasn't uh, like banking. So if you go and pitch to a bank, it's formal, you wear a suit and tie, you stand at the front of the room, you've got a presentation. Because it was media and entertainment, I could go there and kind of sit with the two people who made the decision and I could, it was conversational, I could talk yeah. to them, I could pitch and, so I didn't need to be classically trained or it was a conversation and kind of if they liked you and you built a relationship with them, you'd get the, you know, you might get the business and it's 22. Give, give me a trick of the trade. How did you do that? How did you get them to like you? Because like we're sitting here and it's like, I'm hearing you, obviously well, you, you know, know how I'm, to do it. I'm not a likable guy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's questionable, but I'm saying how, how'd you get them? Like, what would it be like? So what do you, how would you finesse them? How would you get them to like you? understanding people and how they behave and what they like and what they don't like is something I think I've always been like quite, quite good at. So I was able even back then to say, okay, you know, this, this guy is, is the powerful guy and he wants everybody to know he's the powerful guy. So the way to talk to this guy is to, is to say, listen, you need to always be on the road. You need to make sure people can get to you like with your status and your position, it would be terrible if, you know, you weren't able to be reached by your phone. You've got 10,000. Oh, okay. right, so we're, we're yeah. pitching to his kind of power and position. Yeah. So basically finesse them into doing right. it like, so, okay, cool. And that's something like we learned on our estates, right? Yeah. That's, how we, that's how we talked our way out of yeah. like the older kids, you know, taking our football or like we learned, we learned that stuff on. What was family life like? What was, what was going on family life at that time? Uh, I was in a, I was in a serious relationship and like we, was then with my now wife. So we were just like... So it was that Coliseum days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it those days? All right, yeah. cool, cool, cool. So we were in, it was on that journey, no kids, like two kind of single working ad- adults. So we were like traveling and socializing a lot. But it, w- it was good because at Primavera, uh, it was like, a in, it was a European, it was an American company, but we were working at the European office. So when people would get fired, or, or left the Primavera, mm. I would convince the owners to let me take their responsibility while they looked for a replacement. And so I, you're just learning, getting loads of strings right. to your boat. You're just learning different parts of the, the, the yep. industry. Yeah, and I'm going to different countries because, you know, you, you manage Eastern Europe and I manage the UK and then you leave and I say, hey, Joel, let me look after Charlie's account. He said, okay. So now I'm traveling to Eastern Europe at 24 on business. I'm doing business. What did you, because I remember you used to travel... So- like you literally weren't in the country at yeah. most stages. What was that like, like in terms of experience and how do you think that helped you in terms of your outlook on life? Unbelievable. Coming like where 20, we're coming 24, from. 24, like coming from where we're coming from, you're getting paid and being paid for to travel to these countries and sit with people and try and get deals done and do business. Unbelievable. Unbelievable experience. I learned so much. 
Okay. So yeah, so you say you, you're at Primavera, you're traveling. So how did this conversation happen when you say about, you said the conversation happened when you started speaking about shares. So what was there? Was it a big team? Oh. So Primavera was maybe a hundred people when I started and 20 of those people were in London supposed to look after Europe. Um, and then what was happening is like the, I was the junior sales guy in the team supposed to kind of support the other guys. That was my, that was my job. And in supporting them, I was learning about what they did. Right. Uh, and I would always like press them to tell me more and explain more. Um, and I remember we went for drinks after work one day and we were all sitting around having a drink. Uh, and one of the sales guys was like, oh, oh, I might have to leave. I'm having a terrible year. This year's been really bad. I'm probably only going to make you know, 250 grand this year. It's crap. It's terrible. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can rem- I can remember the moment when, when the guy said that. I can remember where we were sat. The, the whole, it's like the whole world just... So you never had no inclination that some no. of the people you're working with was on that no. sort of money? No, because... £250,000 a year where we're from yeah. and at 25, in my head, you had to be the CEO of Coca-Cola yeah, 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 yeah. to be making two hundred fifty, or you had to be the Prime Minister yeah. right, or CEO of Nike. Like yeah, These yeah, were the guys yeah, who yeah, made yeah, 250 yeah, It was so like, foreign and, and um, in, unimaginable that a, a normal person, and this guy was, that was the beauty of it. Like This guy was absolutely normal. Mm. <laughs> He's the most normal guy you could yeah. ever... And when he, when he said it, like the, the rest of the guys around the table were like, well, it's not going too bad for me. I'm probably going to do 325 this year. So you're like, what's going on here? And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking, these guys aren't, like, they're, not, they're not that far ahead of me that they should be making that much more money like, ahead of me. So from that minute, I was kind of back to the Motorola thing. I was just like, okay, I'm going to be in this conversation. Like when we come back here in a year's time, there's going to be someone in my seat who's yeah, got my job yeah, yeah. and I'm going to be the guy disappointed that yeah. I've only made 250 this year, but I won't be disappointed. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So at that point I was like, okay, I'm, I'm coming for his job. Right. And then, and actually he did leave and I convinced the owner to give me his accounts and I did really well in his accounts. And then I convinced the owner to not replace him and let me do my old job plus his job. And I convinced him he didn't have to give me more money for it. Just had to pay me more commission for it which meant, I don't know, maybe I was earning like 70 grand a year at that point. And that guy would have been getting 100 grand a year as a basic salary, yeah. right? So I'm doing his job and my job for 70 grand. Great for the owners. This is more money than I ever imagined I would have. So I'm fine with it too. And then the next guy left uh, to go and take another job. Same thing, went to the owners. I was like, let me have Nick's account. And so like, you know you're going to smash. You know you're like, I'm going to make sure I smash on the commission. So you're like, all right, I'm going to put myself in a position where it just has to make sense it has for to you. make sense it makes sense for them to do it and then for you if you do what you need to do you're going clear it's a no brainer right? yeah. it's, it's a no brainer and, and what made you that confident that you knew you could do it because you looked at them and you were I like was, yeah I was working technically for them for a long time and I knew that they knew stuff I didn't know and I knew they had experience I, I didn't have but when I would hear them talking about what they did I was I was answering the questions before they would. You know, like you, you hear somebody talk about, yeah. I don't know, doing a pitch and they say, I, I don't know, the customer's trying to figure out whether they should do this or do this. So we need to discuss amongst us whether it's A or B. And I'd hear the conversation, I'd say in my head, oh, it's B, it's obviously B because of this, this and this. Okay. I didn't have the experience or the confidence to volunteer the opinion, so I'd wait. And then they'd take an hour <laughs> and discuss it and 
agree that I was right in the end. They just didn't know that that's, and I'd been in enough of those conversations to say, I, I could do this job. I, I could do it. So, so I would, I was happy backing myself and I knew my plan was that enough of them would leave that I would have enough of the accounts that I could, I would be in control at that, at that point. And that's exactly, that's exactly what happened. So by the time we had the, the equity conversation or the share options conversation. You've got Macy, all the accounts. I've got, I've got 80% of the region and it's doing really, really well. So now your choices in the negotiation are like, give me what I'm asking for or deal with this mess when I leave um, tomorrow. So I, I, I was in a position of strength at that point. Nice. And then, so what, how long did you carry on working there? So I, as part of the share, there's a few parts to it. So I negotiated my shares. Um, we agreed on a five-year business plan for what I would do, which meant I could hire a lot of people. And I was, so now I was hiring people in lots of different countries. My, my strategy that I pitched to them was all of these people shouldn't be in London, which is where we'd been doing it before. I was like, we should put the people in the countries where we want to do these, do these deals. They'll be local. They'll understand the culture. They'll have a local network that they can leverage. So that's what I pitched. Where um, did that come from? That came from being tired traveling to all of these countries and having to lose a lot of hours researching the customer or the organization because I don't know who the number one gas supplier is in Russia. But if you're an IT salesperson in Russia, you probably do, right? So mm. again, it was kind of obvious to me that what we was doing practical, didn't, didn't yeah. make sense. It, yeah. was, it was impractical. I'd just taken advantage of it, but it was totally impractical. Um, yeah, and they, they went for it. Uh, they backed me and we did better than I said we would do. I was lucky because I didn't have a family. I could travel to those countries and hire people and spend time with them for months on end because I didn't need to be in London. Uh, and then, yeah, we sold, we sold Primavera to Oracle for $550 million in 2008. And I had, I had shares in the company. So when that happened, it was like the best, best day of my life. It was the best day of my life at that point. All right, so you started, um, you were saying that was one of the best days of your life. Mm. I want to switch that to going to one of your worst days in your life. Tell me like one of the worst bits of adversity that you went through, that you went through that you can remember. The worst? Ah, oh, yeah, there's been, it's been a lot. I think the, one of the worst points of my life when my, my daughter was diagnosed with leukemia when she was, uh, she was two. Um, that was one of the worst days, like obviously life-threatening illness. It's my daughter, my job as a father is to protect her from those kind of things. We were actually on a high, like the household, the family was on a high at that point, like feeling really good. And then that kind of came out of the blue. And that was that day. And then the, the process of dealing with that was one of the worst, uh, one of the worst. Yeah. So when you say the process of dealing with that, what was the support system like around you at the time? We were, we, we, like me and Daniel were really lucky because we had a lot of good support around us, right? So we had you know, Daniel's cousin, my mum, like really good family, really good network of support. Um, but it, even with that, with that support to take care of the other kids, to kind of help with, you know, shifts and, and all of that, even with that, you still have to go into hospital and stay with your child in hospital pretty much 24 hours a day. Uh, the hospital can look after them, but as parents, you want to be there 24 hours a day. And you're watching your child be poisoned with chemotherapy in the hope that this poison drives the life-threatening disease out of her. The doctors explain that 
you know, the first treatment run is probably going to be a four month treatment run of regular chemotherapy, which is kind of radioactive medicine that they pass through a body to kind of kill one category of blood cell and allow them to regenerate without, uh, without cancer, without, without cancer cells in them. And as that chemotherapy passes through a body, then well, it's, it's radioactive. So a lot of the downsides of radioactive material your child experiences burns away the inside of their mouth, burns oh. away the, the tongue, burns away a lot of the soft tissues, so like the, the bowel. Um, so like going to the toilet becomes like really painful. What was that like for you? They like become susceptible to infection. When they get an infection, you have to stop the treatment and deal with the infection. The infections become life-threatening. So what was that like for you though? Like, like, cause obviously you've also, like you said, you got to look after the other kids and then you got mm. Dan to look after as well. What was that like? I struggled with the helplessness of it all. And it's out of your hands, out of my hands. Right. And I'm back to not being in control. And I don't know if my daughter's going to make it. And my family, like my family have always looked to me to like lead them through these situations. I don't understand this disease. I don't understand the treatment. I've got no experience of this. My mum's crying, you know, my wife's crying, my child's crying. And I can't, I can't say, to, like in any other adverse, most other adverse situations since I've been an adult, I've been able to go, we're going to do this, we're going to move there, we're going to sort that out, and three months we'll be out of this. And here I'm just like at the mercy of, uh, of the doctor. So it was, uh, yeah, it was brutal. Did you feel that you specifically yourself, do you feel that you had support? Do you, was you talking to Dan? Were you talking to anyone at the time about it or were you just supporting everyone else? I'm a, I, I had support. So like the yeah. people I like, love and care about and they love and care about me were really supportive, really, really supportive. But did you go for support for this? Nah. Just having support, but then you actually actively seeking it? Nah, but do you know what? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an introverted person naturally. Like I know people sometimes don't agree with that, but I'm an introverted person naturally, which means I resolve my problems inside. Because I know anyway, you've got a good support system. Mm. Is it? Do you ever feel like I wish I could be that person? Sometimes I wish I could be someone that could actually talk about stuff and not hold it in and always work it out myself. Do you ever feel like that or not at all? You're like, well, that's me. That's how I get through things. Nowadays, I've mostly through work. I've realised that sometimes if you just chew something through with somebody, it can be helpful because you know you chew something through with someone and they go, yeah, yeah that happened to me, and you go, oh, so this isn't like a the universe hasn't conspired to do this to me. Yeah, like yeah, this yeah, happens yeah, to people. Okay, yeah. cool. So I feel a little bit better about it now because I understand it happens to people. So, or they go, I tried this and you go, Oh, actually, yeah, that, so it can be helpful to chew things through in that way. What I'm, what I'm trying to do is talk more. Cause I think people in my yeah. life, it's difficult for them watching me go through something and I just don't want to talk to them and I don't communicate and I don't mm. engage. Like it's hard because they're looking at me going, I know this guy's suffering. I know he's in a bad spot. I force myself to talk about it so that the people close to me aren't, don't feel alienated. It's kind yeah. of more for them yeah. a lot of time than it is. For me. And it does a lot for you without even sometimes always realising it, like we say in hindsight. So being the person that you are and the organisations, the companies that you run and whatnot, would you ever say, like, you know a lot of people, but is there times when you feel alone, like you've got all this support, but you actually feel like, oh, it's just me? Or... Yeah. Most of the time. Yeah. I've got amazing friends and people who, if I wanted to talk to them, I could go and talk to them. People who would do a lot for me. So it's not a reflection of the no, friends. No, not at all. It's how you are. It's, it's, more, it's, more, uh, it's more how I am. Like, I've always been the, the fixer of most 
situations, right? So in my family, I'm the breadwinner for a lot of people. So when people's boilers break down or cars break down or they're trying to buy a house or they need a financial, like they ring, those people ring me because I, I have the means to help them in those situations. Um, at work, I'm the CEO. So when something's not going right, when a project's failing, when we need to invest in something, that conversation has to make its way to me because I'm the person who can sign off, who can sign off, and who can who can deal with those who can deal with those things. What is hard, I think, for people to understand sometimes is that my my outgoings every month are like this much, right? These are my outgoings every month because of the people I support, because of like lifestyle, because of investments we made, right? So these, these are my outgoings every month. So when I don't know when a when a cousin can't pay their mortgage and it's a thousand pound problem, I can fix that problem. If I can't meet my outgoings for the month, there isn't anybody really I can call to go, no. like, I, I, you know, I'm having a bad month. I need 50 grand <laughs> or, or whatever the number is. Do you know, do you know what I mean? And that, and that, even though I've never really had that situation, just knowing that is a lonely, like is a, is a lonely thing, right? And having so many people around, where you're blessed to be able to support so many people or help so many people, what it actually means is your phone rings a lot with questions, requests, and asks. And it, it's, it's not a problem, but in the, in the dark of the night sometimes, you go to bed and you're like, I've sorted that out. Did I do that? Did I get back to that person? Did I tell him to call him to sort that out for him? Okay, cool. I've done all of that, sorted that out for everybody. Okay, let me go to bed. And you realize... I haven't done anything for myself today. Taking that all into account, like everything that's going on, if you could be a, any animal, what animal would you be and why? I'd be an eagle. Yeah. Bird of prey, elegant, symbolic, flies high. Can see everything in front of sees you. Sees everything. Eagle, eagle flex. Yeah. Mm. All right, so we're moving on. So you were saying Primavera, had shares in the company, mm. sold it for, what did you say, $550 million? million. You've got a nice little chunk. Right, so what goes on now? The, so when, when we sold Primavera, I was running, uh, by that point, I was running the international division, which became almost half of the company. Right? And uh, uh, Oracle, the president of Oracle at the time was a guy called Charles Phillips, a uh, black guy, one of the top, top, tech guys in the industry had done work for Obama. So what I want to, I'm going to stay on that point. This is something I wanted to ask you. So when you're in these circles, are you one of one? And you know what I mean by that? In terms of the industry that you're in, are there other people that are like you? Uh, hardly ever. And that's why Charles was such a big deal to me because not only was he in the room, like he was, he was the president of probably the biggest and most relevant technology company at that time, and that company is still in the top three tech companies now, right? So he wasn't just in the room, he was like- Yeah, he the, was the, the room. Right, he was, he, he the, was the room. So proximity to Charles was like amazing. So how did you navigate? So I'm saying, so you get to this point before you get to Charles, how did you navigate through that in terms of being- Being, being, that, the, only, being the only person of color in the room? Yeah, and also sometimes we can be the person of color in a room, but you could also be coming from a different place. Do you know what I mean? Because we're not- not everyone from colour comes from the same place. What do you mean? I mean, not everyone's coming from Lewisham, mm -hmm. coming through some of the adversities that you've been through. Some people are coming from more affluent backgrounds, right. coming from mother and father together, coming from 
a great structure. Do you know what my thing was, Charles? And I, I say this a lot now, like with Project 10 and the different things that we were doing at Falls Family Group. When I talk to young people and who sometimes are struggling with that or sometimes fear that a little bit, I always say to them, like my mentality when I was going into those rooms was, I'm here for everything that can be gained in this room. And this guy's been to Cambridge. This guy's been to Oxford. This guy's been to Durham. That guy's a millionaire. That guy's a billionaire. That guy's sold 20 companies and made 150 million. You're all, you're all going to give me what I want or what I need out of this situation, despite the fact that you've got all of the advantages. And I just, I took it as, I just took it as a, as a challenge. I took it as a wrestling match that, that has to happen. How? I'm a young person right now and I'm looking at Dean and I'm like, yeah, like, I know you went through these things. I went through them as well, but like, how? How do I get to be like Dean? How do I get that, that drive? How do I get in, have that mindset to go into that room and say, you know what, I'm taking it, it's mine. Because I know, because some of these kids, they know how to do it on the road. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Are, you, are you crazy? Like we, we, the situations we grew up in are far... Maybe not, maybe not. No, in a lot of ways, they're, they're better preparation for that mindset and that strength of mentality than going to Oxford. Don't get me wrong. At Oxford, you're going to get a, a, a level of academic education is probably the, one of the best in the world. No, no question about it. But to have the, the forthrightness and the, the mentality and the bravado, we, we use those things to survive. Like, do, mm. do you know what I'm saying? We did, it, not having those things was the difference between bad life things happening. Right, it was the yeah. difference between life and death. And I said to these kids all the time, you're going to apply all of that to these negative situations of like, drugs and knife crime and all of these things that you want to apply all of that to and never make the money that I've made. Well, then you're an idiot. Like, that's, that's, that's nonsense. Because when I was 26 and 27 going into those rooms, I didn't have education. I hadn't been to Oxford. I hadn't learned the industry really. Those things were actually all I had. Because I get what you're saying and I understand what you're saying about that determination, just basically saying you're coming, you're prepared, you're from the road, like you've got that mentality, I'm taking this. But how, I've got little cousins. They don't, some of them, I'm not saying all of them, but some of them don't know how to speak. I'll be with you, they've got some bad habits. They don't know how to speak when they're around other people. They can speak when they're around me because they're comfortable. But how do you go into a room and like, I know someone's saying, oh, hi, how's it going? You all right? Yeah. How does he, if he's a man that's like, yeah, you get me a car <laughs> and he talks like that, but he's got the smarts on the road. Right. How does he transition? The, the key element in the transition is what we do in our heads. So when I, when I went to work at Primavera and I had the revelation of these people are making like serious money, I decided I was fine to be the junior person. I was fine to make teas. I was fine to make coffees. I was fine to be the setup person who would go in before the meetings and plug in all the laptops and plug in the projector and put out the presentations. If in return, they would let me sit in the room, which they did. And after the meeting, they'd answer all the questions that uh, that didn't happen. Right. So the difference I think is I had the humility to do that. And because I did that, I learned. And the information I, is I, key. Right. I, I learned how that all how it all happened. And that's what I think the difference is. A lot of these people know how to talk. They just, just don't want to do it. They don't want somebody else to make them change the way they, they talk. And when you go to work and you start, somebody at some point is going to talk down to you and they don't ever want to be spoken down to. And because of those things, they never end up in the rooms I, mm. I ended up in. So like, I think if you, if you overcome all of that, 
you end up in the room. And if you end up in the room, you're going to hear it's some stuff. You. It's up to you. And then you can kick yeah. on. Right? Okay. And, and to me, that's the only, nobody's going to convince me. Talent, charm, charisma, like basic intelligence. A lot, a lot of these people that I speak to, they've got all of it. Mm. Thank you. Uh, so you said, we go back to, you said you went after, you was at Primavera and then you mentioned Charles. That was an um, important moment as well because we'd sold the company and I made some money and I was ready to move on and do something different. And I got to buy my mum a house, uh, which was like important given what had happened to us. I got to buy her a car, I got to pay off mortgages, I got to help family. So it was What was like, that feeling like? Ah, oh, um, like with Mumsy, what was that, that was, feeling like when you bought the house from Mumsy? That was unbelievable. Yeah, that was, that was unbelievable. I remember like, we were both just sitting there crying uh, in the house because... She needed a house and, oh, yeah, one of the best feelings. Uh, Do you think people know that side of you when you say you were sitting there with Mumsy just like crying both together? Probably not because I don't, I don't speak about all of that stuff openly, mm-hmm. but we'd been homeless twice. My dad had beaten my mum. We'd had no food. We'd lived in one room in the house because we couldn't afford to heat the rest of it. So here we were buying my mum a house outright that she chose. It's like we viewed all these houses. She was like, I want that one. It was the most expensive one. I was like, okay, cool. We're buying, we're buying this house. And then we just got the keys and we both sat on the floor crying. Oh, it's, it was, yeah, it was nice. Cool. Uh, so sorry, continue. You were saying about... Yeah, so, so when, we, when I was getting ready to leave, uh, Charles Phillips like, rang me. I was a Hongland Barbados and he called and he said, we'd like you to run this Primavera thing, like sales and marketing on a worldwide basis within Oracle. Uh, and he said, you know, before you think about it, um, we'll pay you a million dollars for the year if you do it. So, so uh, I was, when he called, I was kind of like, whatever he wants me to do, I'm going to do because it's Charles. And you've just sold the company anyway. Sold the so, company. so basically you sold, did you sell it to Oracle? Yeah. So you sold the company to Oracle for 550 million. You got shares in the company anyway. So now he's saying to you, I just won the international department. You're like, well, I've got this money sitting here. Right. Yeah, I'll go and this is, this is what I do anyway. It was the whole thing. It wasn't the international thing. It was like, we want you to run it kind of uh, globally, which was a bigger job. And having mm-hmm. that big job inside of Oracle meant a lot. So having him call, having him offer that money, I would work like very closely with him. So I got to see him for a year and watch how he moved for a year. And I learned a lot of things. But a year later, I hated working for Oracle. Um, and I got the chance to go and be CEO of a French software company. Like I'd, been, I'd become known like among technology yeah. investors and I'd been called a few times during that year. And then one of them called me uh, and offered me a job in, in Paris, one in a French software company as the CEO. And it felt like the next natural progression uh, for me. So I went and chose to go and do that. And how was that like in terms of family life? So what, was, you living in, was you living in Paris? Yeah, I'd, I'd, live, I'd live in Paris four days a week and then come home uh, for free. So big, big sacrifice for me and the family to, to, to do that. Um, but again, I had shares in that company and the game was if we could build it to a certain level, we'd be able to sell it uh, and make a lot of money from selling it. So I was, again, just work mode focused on... How, how does that work, though, like in terms of family life? Because it's about people getting a glimpse into how you've been able to get to where you, you've got... What do you do? What do you say to your missus? What do you say to Danielle? Like, oh, look, I'm going to be over here for four days of the week. And she's like, oh, yeah, cool. No worries. How does that work? Like, do you know what I mean? How does that work? Because it doesn't matter. No, it does matter. But I'm saying, 
you can be doing what you're doing, but still it's that time and that quality time. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So how does that work? What's that conversation look like? That's a that's a family decision for, for yeah. sure. Like you wouldn't make that uh, in isolation because it leaves a burden on her. Like family life for me has to be a, a it's a complete thing. Like it's not an individual. It's like a, it's a, it's an organism, right? It's it's I don't know. It's like a, a body. It's like a body. So if one part of it isn't good, then everything in it in it suffers. Do you know what I mean? So. So me wanting to go and do this, okay, I can probably decide to go and do it and just go and do it. Then family suffers. Then while I'm in Paris, there's more, you spend more time on the phone or you spend more time anxious you about what's focus. going on. So now you can't get the outcomes you need at work anyway because it's, it's stealing half of the week, dealing with, you know, uh, turbulence at home anyway. So, okay. All right, so you're in Paris. Get you there four days a week, three days, three days over here. Yeah. You got your driver. What was it, what's that fella's name? I remember the guy. The guy with the grey hair. Like, I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he still about Pete? No, no, no. Ah, oh, it's a shame. But anyway, yeah, so you're over there. What's that, what's it like for you? Like life, family life, work? Uh it was it was hard. It was hard because the French company didn't want an English guy to be CEO. It was my first time being CEO. I took over from the guy that started the company who all of the employees loved. So it's complete rejection on day one. And like in the early days, I would set up meetings with like the team to go through stuff and people just wouldn't show up. I had times like just sat in meeting rooms for the 10 o'clock meeting and it's 10.15 and I'm the only person. <laughs> Me, coffee and croissants are like the only, yeah. the only things that are in the room. So they were never going to do what I needed them to do. So we had to change some of the employees. And so soon, you got rid of them, basically. As soon as we started to change some of the employees, two things happened. Other employees left because they realised what was happening. Yeah. And then the ones that stayed, we got, got to figure out these were the ones who wanted to be here and we're going to take a shot at it. So. Yeah. And then, so how do you get from that point to where you've gone after that? So you built that company up. Did you end up selling that company? Yeah, we, we sold that company to American Express um, and it was the biggest uh, technology deal that they'd ever done at the time. Um, and that was a new experience for me being the guy selling the company as a CEO. Uh, and I remember kind of negotiating that deal with the chairman of uh, American Express at the time and him like having me removed from his office like twice by security. We had some big... <laughs> Kind of scream, well, like screaming, into it with screaming matches uh, in his office. Yeah, yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that was a funny time. Yeah. <laughs> so what did the deal eventually go through? The deal, yeah, yeah. Of course, the deal, yeah. the deal went through, and he paid. Uh, he paid, paid what I told him he was going to pay. But yeah, so along the way, he told me a lot that he was never going to pay. That at one point, he was like. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy your tiny little company. You're going to be dead in this industry. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's just like, whatever, mate, sort of thing. Yeah that, yeah, that was funny as well, because that was, um, I remember the situation, right? And it's kind of a funny story. So in a deal like that, someone makes an offer to buy the company and they get exclusivity for a period of time. So you say, okay, we accept your offer and you've got 60 days to get this deal done. And during those 60 days, we won't try and sell the company to anyone else, right? Because it's good for them because what they don't want is to make you an offer for a hundred pounds. And then you go somewhere else and say, I've got this offer for a hundred pounds. I can sell it to you for 102 yeah. and do that to them. So yeah. they make the offer and you get a period of exclusivity. So we got to the end of the 60 days and American Express hadn't done what they should have done. Um, so he sent me an email to say he needs another 60 days of exclusivity. Right. So my reaction was 
No. Right. That, that that it's not in no. my interest yeah. to give him to that. Wait another Plus, two months. He's done sixty days of work, so actually he's quite committed to doing the deal. So the best thing for me to do is not. So I I said to him like actually no, you just have to carry on doing your work, and if you get it done, then we'll sell the business um, to you. So we're having this backwards and forwards, and I could realize he was getting angry, and I didn't have another buyer, so I didn't want him to pull out. So I said to him, look, I'll uh, I'll come to your office in Manhattan. We'll sit down, we'll go through what you're going to do in the next 60 days. And as long as it seems realistic, then I'll extend, yeah. I'll extend the uh, 60 days. So I get to his office in Manhattan. It's like on the top floor, one of them skyscrapers in Manhattan. And when I get there, his PA says, oh, yeah, he's expecting you. You can sit here. And sit here was on a stool outside of his office door. Right? <laughs> so, so, so he's trying to mug you from the beginning. So I'm sat, I'm sat on this stool outside of his office and I'm thinking... I don't think this is right. Like this big office has surely got some other places people can wait. And people are coming in and having meetings with him and going back out. And I know some of the people say, hey, Dean, like, what, what are you doing here? I'm waiting to see Greg. I'm going, I need to just get up and leave. Like, this is nonsense. So then he comes out an hour and a half later and he um, invites me in his office and he pushes the paper across the table and he's like, just sign the extension. I said to him, Greg, like, I just need to understand what's going to happen for the next 60 days. And so he just starts shouting. So he's proper talking to you like like you're a little guy, like, like, you can, a, right. like just some any guy, like he can just talk to you over how he yeah. wants. He's like, and so when I when I say to him, I'm just I just need to understand what we need to do in the next sixty days. He just starts shouting, "You're a moron!" People told me you were a smart guy. You're an idiot. You're a coward. And he's just and he's just he's blowing he's blowing up. And other people are like walking past his office and he's calling me, he's going, Charlie, Charlie, come in here. I thought you told me this was a smart guy. This guy doesn't know anything. Like, he's going to be dead in this industry. So I'm just like... So, but when he's saying this stuff, what are you saying at the time? At, at the time, I'm, I'm saying in my head, you cannot start reacting to this because <laughs> people don't speak to me like that. <laughs> yeah. This isn't how you talk to me. So, so if I start engaging we hit a point where we can't come back from this at all. So I'm thinking, you know, just remember. So you're calm. thinking about the deal. So your eyes on the price. I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the deal and I'm just saying to myself, just keep thinking about the deal. Don't worry about it. He picks up the paper, he tears it, puts it in the ball, he throws it. All of this, uh, all this theatrics. theatrics yeah. And I'll never, we'll never do this deal. You'll be dead in six months. And he's just shouting, shouting. And I keep, and when I speak, I just keep saying reasonable things to him like, Greg, I flew from England to you in your office to have this conversation with you. And, and this is all I'm asking. Is this unreasonable? You don't get to ask me those questions. I'm the buyer. You're a, I'm, he said to me, he said, uh, the thing you don't understand is uh, big dogs can act like little dogs, but little dogs <laughs> must never act like big dogs. <laughs> I've been looking for a situation to say that phrase like yeah. in a business situation since then so I'm just sitting there waiting it out and like after after what seemed like a few hours he did something that just let us both get out of the room with some element of a, a kind of you know our ego still intact he, he said he, he just mumbled this sentence like We've got to get banking approval, put it in front of our IC, get the paperwork together, which I think we can do in two weeks. Then we've got to get it signed off by the order. I don't, I don't know, but like he just mumbled a sequence of actions yeah. and it let me write them down, right? So I could pretend he gave me the plan. Yeah, yeah. He could pretend he didn't really say anything. I signed the, um, the extension and I, and I left. And then after, after that, um, 
at the end of that extension, he called and said he needed another extension. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, I, I can't do that. I've got, um, you know, I've got other people that have been asking me to buy the company. I had no one, but other people that have been asking me to buy the company. And you start shouting again. I'm like, listen, we've got, you know, three other people that are really interested. So I can't give you the extension. And I hung the phone up. And then yeah, he was calling me back. So I was ignore this calls for a few days. Oh, you're playing that game with him. Yeah. So I answered this call after a few days. I said, look, Greg, I can't really, uh, can't really, you know, get into this um, conversation at the moment. And he was like, don't send it to anybody. I'll get the deal done by Friday. Like, I promise you, I've got everything ready to go. I'll get it done by, I'll get it, I'll get it done by Friday. So in the two days of ignoring him, he made like a month of progress uh, yeah. in those two days. Um, and then he got the deal done. Got it done on the Friday. I got my money on the Monday and I was supposed to go and work for him. That was part of the deal. It was actually in the contract that I was supposed to go and work for him. Um, and I just never went back on the Monday. When I got my, mm. when I got paid, I never, I never went back. And he had told everybody that by that point that I was coming to work for him and this was going to be my job and my role. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking back to all of those conversations and thinking... You don't want to be a little dog no more. No, number one. Yeah, number one, <laughs> I'm never going to work for you. And number two, the more people you tell that I'm coming to work for you, the better because now the, the embarrassment is going to be on you. Yeah. You're going to have to explain to people that I just haven't, uh, I haven't shown up and you're going to have to explain to people why. So I enjoyed that. What lesson, what lesson would you take from that whole experience, that negotiation? Do you know, one of the things he said to me during the, the screaming match was um, when he was saying, I'll take everything from you, I'll destroy you. And I remember saying to him at that time, I said, Greg, you don't understand that. Like, I've lived a lot of my life with nothing. So not getting the money from this deal doesn't really, doesn't really matter to me. I was happy when I had nothing. So okay. if you, if, I said to him, if your biggest threat is me going back to nothing, I was actually okay. Like, I was, yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I was fine with that. Um, biggest lesson. I, and I think I'm, I'm quite good at that, like, I knew what I had in that deal. Like I knew what I had to get from that deal. So I was like, I'm getting that from this deal. And reacting badly to him doesn't get me the deal or what I need for my family. I've got out of that what I needed to get. My family's set because of it. The price I paid was, you know, Greg shouting at me for two hours. It's mm. Like it's nothing. Mm. It's nothing at all. I do it 10 times again. So now we're at Forbes Family Group. So explain, can you explain in your entirety what that is, how that's come about? So that, that came about because uh, like throughout my life and my career, I've always wrestled with, like, am I doing enough? Am I you know, supporting people? And it's always been a bit of a difficult one because it's like, well, the more hours I spend trying to help people, the hours I'm not spending trying to, uh, trying to move, move myself and my family forward. So it's always been a bit of a of a difficult one. I've always felt like as well, there isn't really enough there to be, who am I to like support people? I think after the last time when I sold the last company to Access, um, and then I ended up on, on the power list I, and I was talking to my friend, Tim Campbell and, and Tim was kind of like, you know. Power list, what's that? So the power list is the hundred most influential people of color in the UK. Okay. So around that time and talking to Tim, um, he was like, you know, you should just by you doing more and being visible, it helps. Like it can help people. So we use for family group to put like a structure together to help, to be helpful to people in a few different ways. So we do community work. So we, we like to like invest in um, community projects that, that are uh, like close to our heart in one way, shape or form. So last Christmas, no Christmas before, we did like a big food drop for low income families. Um, we've just 
become partners with 10MB, which is local football yeah, and, yeah. and community centre. So those things are close to us. So we put money and resources to help uh, with those things. Um, the other thing we do is uh, invest in. So we invest in underrepresented entrepreneurs, right? So real kind of local ground level entrepreneurs that have got good business ideas and we want to support them because we've learned a lot, got a good network now mm. and can put that to good use for um, other people trying to build a business. So we're invested in our game, Foxbury, uh, Joe Knows Food. So we, we put money into those uh, businesses. We expect to get a return on that, but we're highly supportive of those entrepreneurs. And then it's more the classic investing because something that's insane to me is I get phone calls about investments that are low risk, high return. And I, you know, I don't need, I mean, they're good investments and I'm happy to do them, but there are people with more financial pressure who need to get that return than I do. Mm. But they come to me because I'm in the circle where those conversations are had. So what we try to do with those is make, is I take those investments or full family group takes those investments and we try to make them available to other people okay. um, to participate in. So we're doing one at the end of this month, which has a 50 grand threshold right? to invest. You have to put at least 50 grand into it, which is something I would absolutely do. So I can do that and then go to like the a network. match funding to a... Well, uh, not really, Matt, but I can, I can do, I, I want the investments that so I'll do the, the, I'll meet the threshold. I'll take the legal costs that go with it because I'm going to do it anyway. And I can come to you and my aunt and my cousin and my brothers. I can say, do you want to put money in this? And people can say, I'll put a grand, I'll put five grand, okay. 500. So now everybody, everybody's got access to this investment, uh, but not everybody's got the 50K needed um, mm. to do it in the first place. So we try to do that, make these investment opportunities available to uh, to the network. And it's going really well. It's going really, really well. Yeah, and what do you, because what's made you want to set something like that up? And like you said, you said Forbes Family Group. So is it a family decision once again? What's made you want to do something like that? Uh, so so the, I'm, I don't run Forbes Family Group. Davina, mm. my, my cousin, who was a Forbes until she got married, um, she's the <laughs> she's the CEO, so she, she runs it. Um, we, we've got a good structure of what we do and what we don't do and how much money we put at work. So, but she's actually been brilliant uh, with it. What, what makes me want to do it is because if like I'm from Lucian, I'm in this great situation I'm in. Like if I'm not going to do something like that, then who, like who's going to do it? I have to do it and I can do it. And there's not much to be gained by sitting in my house, like just counting you know, my money whilst the next set of people like us are dying for somebody yeah. to just go, yeah. here's a play center to go to, or you got a good idea for an app. Okay. There's a company that will listen to you and give you a bit of advice and maybe fund you or support you. Like if I'm not going to do that, then all of this was a waste of time. Yeah. Wasn't it? hundred percent. And do you have a favorite quote? My, my, I don't have a favorite quote. My favorite speech and everybody should read this is a, a Teddy Roosevelt speech. It's called The Man in the Arena. And in that speech, he talks about how much, how easy it is for people to stand outside of the arena and laugh at the guy or, or poke fun or critique the guy in the arena. But the guy's, he's in there. Like he's in, he's doing something. He's trying, he's persevering. He's dealing with challenges. He's the guy. And the people, you know, standing around pointing and laughing like that's nonsense. The guy in the middle of the action trying is the is the hero, and I like that. Sure. 
And one last thing, what advice would you give to the younger you? Stick with it. It's going to be pattern. Say that again? <laughs> Say that again? I said stick with it. It's going to be pattern. On that note, it's been an absolute pleasure, sir. <laughs> Thank you.